If we don't know each other, my name's Brian, pastor here at Mount Hope in Belmont. Glad you're here in the room. Glad you're with us online. And I'm going to invite you to grab two things as we start our sermon time together. First is, I'd invite you to open up a copy of God's Word. Uh, whether you use your phone or your tablet or you want to grab, if you grab one of these chair Bibles, we're going to be on page 881. We're in Luke chapter 22 today, so you could open that up. And take a look there. We'll be there in just a moment. I'm also going to invite you, if you're with us in person here, hopefully you got one of these communion cups. I'd invite you to take that now. If you didn't get one, uh, you could raise your hand and one of our ushers will help, uh, help get you one of those. So Brian and Rebecca in the back. I don't know if you can hear me back there, but we need a couple more communion cups in here. Maybe Justin, could you, could you help us with that? Uh, and so if you don't have a communion cup, you can raise your hand. If you're watching at home... Uh, you could grab uh, crackers and juice or whatever you have available. We're going to take communion together right in the middle of, uh, of this sermon. A little bit different this morning, but I'm excited to celebrate communion with you. As we get started here and thinking about God's word, I have a question for you. Have you ever missed it in your life? Looking back, I mean, have you ever missed it? I think we probably all have those situations where at the time that we were in something, we couldn't quite see clearly what it was. And now looking back in retrospect, we say to ourselves, oh, I cannot believe I missed it. I mean, how did I miss it? We're like uh, Dick Rowe, who was the head of Decca Records in England. And in 1962, four guys came in to audition for his record label, and they played 15 songs. They recorded them all. The executives took about 30 days to think whether or not they wanted to sign this group of guys, and they came back, and, and uh, Decca Records said to them, you know, we think you're fine, but we really believe that guitar bands are on the way out, and those four young men went on to become the Beatles, and Dick Rowe spent the rest of his life explaining to people how he was the one who didn't sign and turn down the Beatles, and he had to tell, like, how do you miss it? How do you have those four guys in your, in your record studio trying to get signed, and you miss it? It reminds me of the 1984 NBA draft, which some of you are already upset I've brought up a sports analogy, but just stick with me for one second, okay? It reminds me of the 1984 draft where the Houston Rockets were picking number one. Justin's with me right now, I can see. Right now, the Houston Rockets were picking number one. They chose Hakeem Olajuwon, became a great Hall of Fame basketball player, two-time NBA champion. Portland Trailblazers were picking number two. They chose Sam Bowie right before the Chicago Bulls picked number three and picked Michael Jordan, who arguably became the greatest basketball player of all time. And for the last 40 years, the Portland Trailblazers have been trying to explain to everyone how they missed it. In the 2000 NFL draft, 198 picks were made. Some of you like this one a lot. 198 picks were made before finally... On the 199th pick that year, a little skinny kid out of Michigan named Tom Brady was selected by the New England Patriots, and he became inarguably the greatest football player of all time. I'm ready to have that conversation with any of you after the service, uh, but that 198 people picked before him. In 2002, uh, even after the iPod had been released, you could have invested in Apple stock for $7 a share in 2002. And so many people over the years, fund managers and 401k watchers and all those people have wondered, how could we have missed it? How could we have missed it? At $7 a share, what could have been if we had invested then? And you know what that's like in your life, right? I know what that's like to look back on things and say to myself, how did I miss it? And it happens uh, in, in good ways 
and it happens in some not-so-good ways. And I'm not here to, to say this morning we're going to go back and question all of our decisions, but we understand the feeling, right? And when we get into the story of Jesus on this earth, we're committed this year to spend time in the Gospel of Luke. And right now, we're going to jump. We were just in Luke chapter 4 for the last few weeks. We're going to jump to Luke chapter 22 and start to talk over the next few weeks about Jesus' death and resurrection and everything that went around that as we prepare ourselves for Easter in early April. But as we're walking uh, through this, we're going to notice something. That there was a real specific reason why Jesus was on this earth. That Jesus had a very specific it, who he was and why he was here. And we see very clearly around the cross and his resurrection that there were people who were close to Jesus. And some of them got it. Some of them got it. One of them got it and denied it. We'll talk about him in a few weeks. But there's all sorts of people that missed it. That Jesus was here, and he was doing something very specific. And people spent a day with him. Some people spent years watching him. And they still missed it. And I don't know if you're here this morning or watching this morning, and whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ or not, but I can tell you that the last thing you want to do in your life when it comes to Jesus Christ is miss it. Miss who he is and miss what he was here to do. And so we're going to take a look over the next few weeks as these different people in this narrative, those who got it and those who missed it, and try to figure out why did some people miss it, and how can we make sure that we don't miss it ourselves. So we're going to do two things in the next few moments that we have together. First, we're going to talk about what it is. When we say that Jesus came for a specific reason and he had a specific purpose, well, what was that it? We want to make sure we're clear on that. And then we're going to talk about one group of people. They just missed it. And these are people who had a lot of access to Jesus. These are not people that just passed him one day. These are people that watched him for years, and they still missed it. We're going to talk about why they missed it, look at our own lives, and try to make sure that we don't miss it. So what is this, this it? When we get to this passage in Luke chapter 22, we see Jesus with his disciples And he's going to address them around a table as they're having a meal together. And Jesus begins to, at this meal, say things that he's never said before. And he begins to define for his disciples exactly who he is and what it is that he has come to do. You know, the disciples... They had been with Jesus, and he hadn't had this conversation with them yet. And many of the scholars would say that this is Jesus' farewell discourse. You ever been with someone, and you've been with them for for multiple times, and and then all of a sudden, it's like the person knows that it's the last time you're going to see one another. And so you start to say things that you wouldn't normally say but that are now so important because it's the last time you're going to be together in this way. I remember Lori's grandfather passed away a few years ago. And uh, he, was a, he was a great guy, but 
but he would always be concerned that we were bothering ourselves too much with him. He was, whenever he was hot, sick or in the hospital, we'd try to go and visit him. And he was a, he was a great guy, old Italian guy. And when we'd walk into that room, uh, the first thing he would say when we'd walk into the hospital room to visit him, is he would say something like this. And it was all in good humor. He would say something like, what are you doing here? You're young kids. You should go enjoy your life. You don't need to be bothering yourself with an old guy like me. And we'd say, oh, we just wanted to make sure you're doing okay. And we'd have a short little visit. And that's kind of how it went every single time. We'd walk into his house, walk into the hospital room, and he'd say, oh, stop it. Go live your life. Go have a good time. I'll be fine. And one time I remember we visited. And we walked in the hospital room there at MGH. And he said, he said, Come here, sit down. It was very different. And all of a sudden, he started talking about things I had never heard him talk about before. He talked about being in World War II in Germany, how much he hated it. He talked about the importance of faith and following Jesus Christ. And he said, I want you to know my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All I care about is that you know the same thing. And it was a conversation that we had never had before in that way. But he just knew. He knew this was it. And Jesus, Jesus comes to his, this moment in his disciples, and he's doing the same thing. He knows that tomorrow is the cross. The disciples don't know when they're having this meal that tomorrow is the cross, but Jesus does. And so he's going to say a few things that he hasn't said before, and the disciples are not going to fully understand, but this is him defining the it. This is why I'm here. And here's what he says. I'm going to start in verse 7, chapter 22 of Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where shall you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared it, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus picks in a very intentional time to talk to his disciples about what it is. It's not just that tomorrow he's going to the cross, but it's also about the significance of this Passover celebration and what it meant to the Israelite people. Maybe you remember the story from Sunday school or you've kind of heard bits and pieces of the story before, but this whole Passover meal is remembering something that God had done among the Jewish people thousands of years earlier. 
You may remember they were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. And that God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. He wouldn't let them go. And so God sent a series of ten plagues. And that last plague, the tenth plague, was the harshest of all. And in that plague, the firstborn child of every family was going to die. And Moses said to Pharaoh, this is what God's going to do if you will not let the people go. And Pharaoh would not relent. And so, sure enough... The angel of death, the Bible says, comes through in that moment. And this horrible reality of the firstborn in each family dying happens. But in that moment, God protected his people. And he told them, if you sacrifice an unblemished lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of your home, that that angel will pass over your house that the life of your child will be spared. And the Israelites were so gracious, not only for God's provision in that moment, that they would, their, their children would be spared this reality, but then in the oncoming uh, exodus out of Egypt, and God's provision in the wilderness, that the Passover had become this time of remembrance, that God had provided a sacrifice so that those lives would be spared. And Jesus comes to them and says, all of this that we do to remember, every year we get together and the Passover points backward. From now on, I want you to know that the Passover meal points forward. And in just a moment, he redefines the whole thing. And it's so hard, I think, for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples growing up. And over and over again with their families, they would celebrate this Passover meal and go to Jerusalem and participate in the festival. And it was the same thing, remembering what God had done, remembering what God had done, remembering what God had done. And Jesus comes and in this moment says to the disciples, I need to talk to you before I suffer. And then he says something like this, if I can paraphrase it. I have come to change everything about how God relates to his people. When he says, this is my body broken for you, he's saying, or my body given for you, and he breaks the bread. He's saying, you remember the sacrifice of the lamb that protected your firstborn child. Now I am going to be a sacrifice for you. And when he says this, is, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood, he's saying that lamb's blood was shed to spare those lives. Now my blood is going to be shed to spare your life. And when that blood was shed 2,000 years earlier, God created an agreement with his people. Maybe you remember how this happened. Moses went up on top of the mountain. Do you remember? And God put 10 commandments into stone. And Moses brought them down. And Moses said, here's the agreement between you and your God. You will be his people. He will be your God. But it's reliant on your ability to live up to these standards. And Jesus said, there's a new agreement in me. It's changing. Now it's no, your relationship with God is no longer fully dependent on your ability to adhere to God's law and standards. But your relationship with God is dependent on your willingness to put your faith and hope and trust in me. 
so that your willingness to live in obedience to God's standard and God's law is no longer what you do so that you can earn God's favor. It's now what you do out of obedience because you have received God's favor through Jesus Christ. And Jesus in this moment, and it's hard for us to appreciate, I think, takes the whole thing and kind of turns it on its head and says, we're no longer looking backward, we're looking forward. And there was a way that God related to his people. Now that whole relationship comes through me. That's it. Jesus said, I didn't come just to say some nice things and give you the golden rule and give some nice teachings and do some healing. I didn't come to be a wise sage. I came to be the Savior. And Jesus knew that we were all likely to miss it. So he gave us something that we could practice to remember it. He said to his disciples in the middle of that meal, we're going to break the bread together and take the cup together so that you can remember my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, so that you don't miss it, but that you remember it. And the reason we continue this practice today is for the same reason, so that you and I don't miss it. Who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he continues to do, but so that we remember it. So I'd invite you to take your communion elements and let's remember who Jesus is, why he came. The text says this. It says that Jesus took bread during their meal, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together, remembering Christ's body given for us. And then Luke writes that likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's partake of the cup together, remembering Christ's blood shed for us. Would you pray with me? God, we can never understand the depths of your grace and your mercy that's been poured out to us through Jesus Christ. And we can never come and give you enough thanks and praise and worship for all you have done on our behalf. But we thank you in this moment. Help us not to miss it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, in this farewell discourse with his disciples, he tells them, this is it. This is why I came. I didn't just come so you could follow me around for three years and you could see me do some neat stuff and heal some people. I came to establish this new relationship between God and his people. It used to all go through the law. Now it comes through me. And not everyone got it. And to be quite honest, not everyone wanted to get it. Because when things change like this, it affects a lot of things. And some people weren't too happy about the change. In fact, if we were to look at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, we'll meet a group of people that didn't get it. And it wasn't because they didn't have access to Jesus. They had plenty of access. They watched him for years. 
And it wasn't, I would suggest to you, because they couldn't understand it. They had all the knowledge they needed to understand who Jesus was and what he was doing. I don't think they wanted to see it. Because to see it would mean they would have to change. In verse 1 of chapter 22, it says this. Luke writes, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. They're seeking how to kill Jesus, for they feared the people. And these chief priests and the scribes, these are the religious leaders of the day. So do you remember that old covenant that we were just talking about, that old agreement where God wrote the law and then the people had to uh, live out that law? You have all of these Jewish people that are living in and around Jerusalem at the time. And the chief priests and the scribes, these leaders of the religious order, they were the ones that everyone went to. They had all the power. If anyone had any questions about what God's law was or what God said or how they should relate to God or how they should enter the temple or any of those things, these were the guys that they came to. These were the ones who got to speak on behalf of God. These were the ones who got to rule in authority over the people. And they feared the people. And what that means is they feared the fact that all these people that followed them, all these people that saw them as the authority, were starting to follow Jesus. And the questions they used to bring to the chief priests and the scribes about who God is and how they're to relate to him, they're starting to ask Jesus those questions. They had all the religious knowledge to know that the Messiah the Old Testament had talked about for generations was now right in front of them. But they didn't want to see it. Because to see it would mean that they would have to give up something that they loved, which was being in control and in charge. And so they began to ask themselves, the cost to accept Jesus for who he was and who he is was too great. They were not willing to pay in their authority and being in control to accept who Jesus is. So they begin to ask themselves, the cost of seeing this, the cost of acceptance is too high. So what's the cost of denial? How much is it going to cost us to get rid of this? And in the next first couple of verses, we begin to see that. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officials, those religious leaders, how he might betray Jesus to them. And look at their response. They were glad, and they agreed to give him money, specifically 30 pieces of silver. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. The religious leaders were watching Jesus closely for years, watching how he taught, watching how he healed, watching how he went through the people, and yet they missed it. And the reason they missed it is because they took a picture of everything that was going on and they decided in their own hearts and in their own minds that the cost of acceptance would have been greater than the cost of denial. 
The cost of acceptance would have been greater than the cost of denial. They said, if we can deny this, we can, for 30 pieces of silver, get rid of this guy. And then now we are back in authority. We are back in control. And he's out of the picture. If we accept that Jesus is who he says he is, it means a few things. It means that we have to let him be in control. He now is in control of our lives. We're not in control of our lives. He is. It means that God gets to make the final decision on things of morality if Jesus is who he says he is. It means that we have to come before God and admit that we're sinners and we're not perfect and we've broken his law. And for so many of us, quite simply, that's just too big a price to pay. We want to be in control. We don't want God in control. We want to decide morality. We don't want to have to listen to God tell us what is moral and what's not. And we don't ever want to admit that we don't have it all together. We don't ever want to admit the answer isn't inside of us. We don't want to admit that we're sinners who have done the wrong thing. And so for many of us, the price of acceptance seems just too great a price to pay. And so we won't even consider that Jesus Christ is who he says he is because we don't want to pay the price. But I want you to know this morning that the cost of denial may look less today. But tomorrow, it is always more costly than the cost of acceptance. The cost of acceptance may look great today. And the cost of denial may look small. But tomorrow, in the end, I promise you, the cost of denial is much greater. The chief priests, they got rid of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But it turns out Jesus is the Savior. It turns out he is the Messiah. It turns out they could not hold him down. And I don't know every one of their individual hearts because I know the truth. And the truth is, is that if they, if they accepted that at some point in their life, then they have relationship with God and relationship with Jesus Christ. They're a part of this new agreement, this new covenant that Jesus established. But if they went on denying the ultimate price they paid of being separated in relationship with God is far greater than any price of acceptance they would have paid in loss of authority and power. A number of years ago now, over 10 years ago, my brother-in-law convinced me it would be a good idea for us and some of our friends to join a flag football league in Lowell, Massachusetts, like an adult flag football league. And I thought to myself, well, this will be fun. You know, we'll have a nice casual time. And I totally underestimated uh, how serious uh, some people in their 30s and 40s take a flag football league. This was a serious deal and a big deal. And so uh, we got into this league and we were way over our heads. But one of the rules that they had in the league when I was reading through uh, the rules. And if you don't know what flag football is, uh, flag football is that you wear a belt with two flags on the side so that when you're playing American football, rather than tackling one another and knocking each other over, uh, you just take that flag, you pull it, the belt comes off, and then that person is down. 
It's supposed to minimize injuries. It doesn't work. Trust me. <laughs> One of the rules when we were getting into the league is uh, that you couldn't wear shorts or pants with pockets. And I thought that was an odd rule. But I found out. I found out the hard way why that rule was in place. I remember I, we, were, we were playing in, in Lowell, and I, I ran, and, and uh, the quarterback was running, and I went to grab his flag. And I, I just, just a, a side note, it was an unbelievably athletic play. I wish I had it on video to show you. It was just a phenomenal play. But I reached out, and I grabbed his flag, and the tip of my finger got caught right in the corner of his pocket because he didn't listen to the rules. And I found out real quick why you don't wear pockets in flag football because the top of my finger went from being perfectly straight to sitting at about a 45-degree angle. And I remember looking at that, and it was not good. And what I should have said to myself, what I should have accepted in that moment is to say, your finger is broken severely. That requires a doctor's intervention. It probably requires surgery. You should stop playing in this childish league and get this taken care of. What I did was say to myself, I think with a little tape uh, and maybe like a popsicle stick, I can fix this thing on my own. I got a doctor in the front row over here judging me, but I, I'm sorry. So this is what I did. This is what it is. You see this all the time. So I, I taped this thing up and I taped it to my middle finger, and I said, that thing will straighten itself out over time. And after a week, it was every bit as crooked as it was before, and week two was the same, and week three and week four. Finally, by like six or seven weeks, after I had finished the entire football season and everything else, and after multiple people had said to me, you need to go see a doctor, I went and saw a doctor, and I walked into the walk-in clinic at Mount Auburn Hospital, and the guy there looked at me, and he was like, he just gave me that look, like, you are such an idiot. And, and, and he said, you need to see a hand surgeon immediately. And so I went to see a hand surgeon the next day. The hand surgeon took an x-ray. He put the x-ray up on the computer. He immediately said a word that I'm not going to say in church. And he walked out of the room. And he came back in shaking his head. And he said to me, why did you let the bone regrow like that? Why did you let it do that? I mean, I don't have a good answer. It just seemed like the cost of accepting the reality of my broken finger would have been more than the cost of just learning to deal with it. And so I had to have surgery, and the surgery was way worse than it would have been before. And, and uh, they had to re-break the bone. They had to shift some things around, put a screw in it. And honestly, it never bends, it doesn't bend now the way it did before. And the worst part about that for me personally is I used to really enjoy playing the guitar. I don't know that anyone else enjoyed me playing the guitar, but I used to really enjoy playing the guitar. And I cannot play chords that I used to be able to play anymore because this finger doesn't bend the way it used to. And I, I, I lost that because it seemed like the cost of, ad, of admitting what was there would have been more than just putting it off. I learned the hard way that the cost of denial in the end is always more than the cost of acceptance of the truth. And so many of us in our life, God calls us to do things 
God calls us to give up sin in our lives. God calls us to do what he's asking us to do. God calls us to follow him as our Lord and our Savior. And we look at our own lives, and it's not that we don't believe that it's true. And I really think this is a lot of what's happening in our world. It's not that we're concerned. They're not even concerned about whether or not it's true. All they're concerned about is what would it cost me if it is true. And if the cost is perceived as too great, then they won't even, it won't even bother with whether or not it's true at all. The chief priests and the scribes didn't care if Jesus was who he said he was. They didn't care about the truth. They cared about the cost, that it would cost them to follow him. And when they decided the cost was too great, they said, well, let's figure out what the cost would be to get rid of him. And so often in our lives, God asks us to do things, to follow him, to believe in him, to trust him. But the reality is the cost of that is great. We give him control. We admit our sin. We decide to follow him and whatever he says. It costs us friendships with our classmates and coworkers. It costs us family relationships sometimes. It costs us sometimes what we want and what we think is best to follow what God wants and what God says is best. It's a costly thing. I'm not here to tell you that following Jesus is not a costly thing. It is a costly thing. Jesus said himself, you want to follow me? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and do that daily. There's a cost associated with this. But the cost of accepting who Jesus Christ is and getting it is always less than the cost of living a life and missing it. And so my question for you today is, where are you missing it and choosing to miss it? Because it feels like the cost of what God is asking you to do is too great. You don't follow Jesus Christ with your life, and you know you should. It feels like the cost is too great. I'm telling you, the cost of giving your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ is far less, and the rewards far greater than the cost of denial. Some of us, we know God wants us to not get into a certain relationship or to not be in a certain relationship, but we say the cost of giving up that relationship would be too great, so we just deny what we think we know God is saying. For some of us, the cost of being more public about our faith just seems too great. And so even though we know God is telling us to share, telling us to post, telling us to, to let people know who he is, it just seems like the cost is too great to do it. And I certainly know that I have places in my life where I've done the exact same thing, where God tells me to do something or give up something, and I just, I hesitate and I say, God, I, I don't know, that, that seems like a pretty big cost. And I found out time and time again with Jesus Christ that the cost of acceptance is always less and the rewards far greater than the cost of denial. So I don't know where you're denying what you know God wants you to do today. But I'm encouraging you to pray the cost of acceptance and see him for who he is and do what it is that God's calling you to do. I invite our worship team to come forward as we close in prayer and invite you, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes with me for a moment. Perhaps you're here this morning or perhaps you're watching online and you know 
that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and you have been missing it. And it's not so much that you don't believe it's true, it's just it feels like the cost of admitting that it's true is too great. Let today be the day that you give your heart to Jesus Christ, that you begin to follow him, that you admit what you already know is the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, and that the best use of your life is to follow him. And Christian, you who have followed Jesus for months, days, years, where is that place that you know God is calling you to something and it just feels like the cost of doing what God is saying is too great? Would you take God at his word today and do what it is he's calling you to do? God, help us to boldly and courageously follow you to do what it is you are calling us to do and help us not to miss it. By your grace and through your spirit, help us not to miss who you are and all that you came to do. We thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.